Good morning. I'm Peggy. I'm reading from Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is the word, this is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Peggy. And just great stuff there. Um, good morning. All right. Yeah, thank you. We need to interact here um, this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson. And it's so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I uh, was not here last week. And um, contrary to popular belief, I was not in mourning from the Sweet Six. Well, I was in mourning from the Sweet 16 outcome, but I was in California, actually, um, with the church there. Um, some of you guys know about a church that we really partner with in many ways, and I was just reminded, um, it's, uh, yeah, the Evangelical Free Church of Chico, and what an incredible blessing um, and encouragement they are to us, and I got to go there and preach and share about what God is doing here, and just a really great time, and just good things happening there. So anyway, on behalf of them, I want to give kind of a, I don't know, a big group hug, uh, if you will, from them. Um, they just send their love and are excited about what we're doing here and just to um, partner together. Um, also, I forgot to mention, if you're new or you've never heard me preach before or speak before, I stutter. It's always on display when I say it. But uh, anyway, just an example there for you. But yeah, just so you know what's, uh, what's, what's happening there, it'll kind of come and go um, as we go. And also, I, I didn't plan on necessarily doing this, but when Stephen mentioned how hospitable the Vineyard Church is and how we pray for other churches, they're not just, they've actually given us a key, right? Like, we want to be hospitable with our house, but we don't give a key to that many people. But the Vineyard has been like, just here, take a key, come whenever you want. So just um, how great and generous they are. Another thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if he's in here right now, but um, Raul and his wife, Lupita, are um, part of our church and um, he actually works here for the school, and he gets here early every morning, every Sunday morning, opens up the school for us, drives from their home that he built with his own hands in Mexico about an hour or so into Mexico. So he drives over two hours um, to be here, to open up this place for us. And on Good Friday, um, as we said, you know, we have a service here, Good Friday service. Well, they don't have school that day, so he doesn't need to be here for that. But he said, and he just kind of found out about actually this morning because of some crossed uh, 
channels between the school and us and all these things. So, but he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I will be here. And um, I think he's the only person, including me, or, uh, who's never missed a service. He's been here since day one. Um, in fact, I have these up here as a little reminder. Um, he know we went to their home and they grow chiltepin, which these are like 15 bucks for like five of these. And he knows that I love them. I was like eating them off the plant at his house. And so he just brought me this whole bunch of these um, this morning. So I don't even know if they're in there, but let's just give a round of applause for Raul and Lupita. And, um, yeah, so if you see them, just get to know them. Um, it, it'll be to your, your great advantage and your blessing to know them. Um, they're incredible and really thankful for them. So as we get into our time now this morning in the, in the sermon, we're in Acts um, chapter 8. And um, as we just, just read. So go ahead and uh, turn with me there in your Bibles or in your app or however it is you get to God's word. Um, I would ask you to always have your Bible, to read through it, to follow along again so you know this is God's word that we're looking through and being shaped by. And so if you don't have a Bible with you right now, would you hold your hand up high and keep it up so we can scold you? No, that's not why. So we can get you a Bible. We want to make sure, no shame in that. Um, I actually left mine here a couple weeks ago. So we we know what happens, but um, okay, we want you to have one. So hold your hand up high and keep it up so you can have a Bible to read along with and follow along with. And if you don't own a Bible, you do now. Okay, keep this. This is our gift to you. And también si quieres la Biblia en español y no tienes, levanta su mano y diga español. Y si no tienes una Biblia, eso es un regalo a usted. Y esta mañana estamos en Hechos capítulo 8. And want to make sure everyone has a Bible they can read and understand and follow along with um, this morning in Acts chapter 8. So um, remember now where we are in Acts or even in God's word is this is the Acts of God, the Acts of God we're following along with. Though almost every Bible in the beginning, the heading will say the Acts of the Apostles. It's really important that we remember, no, we're seeing God's works on display here as we walk through the book of Acts. And this is God revealing who he is and his character and his plan and his authority throughout the scriptures. And, and, and this morning as we get into Acts chapter 8, we're entering a new season within the church. Okay, we've had a few of these along the way, kind of a new benchmark where the church kind of faces a new season. And specifically this morning, as we get into um, the early church is now spreading out from Jerusalem. It's going to other places. And, and so it's a significant season that we kind of won't look back, right? Like here we are in 2017 in Tucson, Arizona, right? And, and, and so the church at some point had to, had to go and had to expand. And so um, the word gospel means good news. And so again, when we see God's works on display, it's seeing his gospel, his good news on display. And so what we'll see this morning as we walk through this kind of bigger, bigger chunk of scripture together is we'll see it kind of broken down this way. We see the gospel, again, which means the good news, the gospel that endures persecution. And then the gospel that, that crosses cultural boundaries. And then the gospel that unifies people and then ultimately the gospel that confronts sin. 
Okay, and so that's what we'll see this morning. Because it's a bigger chunk of scripture, it's 25 v- v- verses, I won't necessarily hit every single verse or every single word as we go, but we'll see the cohesive, um, uh, again, shaping of the gospel and who, it, who, who, it, who we're shaped by, by Jesus overseeing his church and, and by leading his people out in light of the gospel. And so with that, let me pray this morning and ask God to remind us of who he is and to shape us and to form us individually and communally in response to his gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this morning. Um, there's so much to be thankful for, for the cool weather that we've had this morning, for a community of people to, to come together, to be known and to know others. Lord, you designed us that way. Lord, you designed us not to live in individualistic, um, kind of little, little compartmentalized lives, but you've created us to have our identity and our purpose flow from you and then for that to overflow through our relationship with one another. So Lord, we pray that you will shape us, inform us, and that those of us who need to be encouraged will be encouraged. Those of us who need to be convicted will be convicted. Those of us who need some of both will get that um, as we submit to your word this morning and we trust and depend on your Holy Spirit even as he is on display in many ways through our, our scripture will be in this morning. Lord, we need you and we call on you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, picking right up and getting right into it here this morning. We, again, we see early on the gospel, specifically the, gross, the gospel that endures persecution. So read with me in Acts chapter eight, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. Okay, we'll get to Saul in a couple weeks and actually Stephen last week, um, who preached about the stoning of Stephen, did a great job, um, got to hear that, and, and uh, he explained this, right? And so we'll, we're, we're going to overlap some of that this morning. But anyway, um, this guy Saul, um, who we'll soon hear more about, um, he oversees this execution of Stephen. And then it goes on, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So right here you have incredible persecution, opposition facing the church. And if you're just reading along in Acts here, and you're just kind of going along and reading through this, and you're an outsider wondering what's going to happen with this whole thing. Like Jesus, like similarly to when Jesus died on the cross, there would be like an uh uh-oh moment. Right, like there's been all this confident language used, all this like, my kingdom is coming, my kingdom is at hand, this is Jesus talking, he's declaring his authority and his power and what he's come to do and this, this, this group, of, of group of people that he's calling to himself and forming and shaping and then he dies on the cross and people are like, oh no, uh, he, he just lost. And then, of course, we know that he victoriously rose from the dead. Again, we celebrate Easter. Even looking, when we have Good Friday service, and as, as um, Tang explained it and did such a good job there, it, it's, we're going to have to force ourselves to enter into that moment within the cross and to realize the, the again, as he mentioned, the, the seriousness and the darkness and the shame that is the cross. 
but we still know that the reality of Easter, right, the resurrection always shapes us, right? So we're not gonna like pretend that we don't know that happens, but we're gonna force ourselves to enter into the reality of the cross. Well, similarly here, as we read along, we know the end of the story. We need to enter in though to how this church must have felt that similarly, Jesus dies on the cross and there's fear. Well, similarly here, as they face persecution, they see for the first time someone other than Jesus is now killed because of his faith. And there has to be this question of, is the gospel sufficient, authoritative, powerful, trustworthy? Is it long-suffering? Is it lasting? Will it endure? Because the church is now facing persecution and opposition, and yet you see that in God's great plan and God's great sovereignty, he uses that to continue to fulfill what he has declared will come true. His own prophecy, as Jesus said in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he said, when the spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. The witnesses, um, those who have experienced and proclaimed the good news of Jesus, who have experienced the gospel, the good news. He says, you will carry that all throughout Jerusalem. And we've seen that happening in the first couple chapters in Acts. And then all around Judea, and then you've seen that happening. That's the surrounding area. And then even to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Well, the church, I don't know if it was intentional or what, but the church is kind of slow to see that. That hasn't been happening yet. And so now through persecution, through apparent defeat comes victory. The church is going out, is scattering, is proclaiming and demonstrating the power of the gospel through persecution. And even as every week here we have the cross on the stage, let us never grow weary of looking to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus to shape every facet of our lives. And there's no clearer picture of apparent defeat that is actually incredible victory than the cross of Jesus. Again, imagine seeing your Savior, your Lord, the one who you saw walk on water, the one who made every bold prediction that could ever be made and then seemingly defeated on a cross. And yet he victoriously rose from the dead and so that must shape us as it shaped this early church and we see this gospel, this good news of Jesus that endures persecution. Let me just encourage us all right now to consider, to press into even on an individual level, on a communal level, what might it look like for us to think the gospel's been defeated? To think, uh uh-oh, in our own personal lives, in our culture, in our city, in our community, in our country, in our world, what moments might we find ourselves in where we say, I guess, I guess it's not all, it's not cracked up as it, you know, said it was. I guess it's, it's, it's not as authoritative and powerful and effective. But let us look and see, no, no, the gospel of Jesus that he has, has, has ushered in and is overseeing and, and, and ruling over and calling us to be shaped by endures all things. And so God uses this to now continue his mission going forward through his people. And so next we see that the gospel will continue to go forward in crossing cultural barriers. Pick up with me now in this next section in, um, in, uh, in verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Again, apparent defeat. They're scattered, they're fleeing, they're afraid. 
And yet, what does God use that to do? To preach the word, to carry out the gospel. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that, that he did. So Philip, okay, this guy Philip, I just talked to a guy in the bathroom this morning who we know, and his name is, is Philip. And, and, and let's just now, um, yes, men talk in the bathroom too, okay? It's, it happens a lot. I think I reference that probably more than anything else in here is conversations I have in the bathroom here. <laughs> The incredibly beautiful um, bathroom of Safford, the boys' bathroom with squitwads and everything um, in there. Well, um, Philip, remember, just a couple chapters ago we saw was a, a somewhat m- 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 marginalized uh, new Christian. Okay, this new church that is forming is the, is the people of God shaped by Jesus. And, and early on, that was, that was, that was Hebrew-speaking Jewish people who were followers of Jesus, and they were forming the church. And then this complaint, complaint rose up, right, in Acts chapter 6, where Greek-speaking Jews were feeling left out. And specifically, their widows were not getting an equal portion, and there was, there was some, some messiness and some tension within the church. Well, Philip was one of those Greek-speaking Jews. And, and, and if you remember, the, the church um, um, empowered the very people who were feeling oppressed and marginalized and said, well, raise up from among you some people who you think should, should, uh, should, should help solve this problem. And Philip was one of those people. So was Stephen, who we saw last week, used mightily and powerfully to proclaim the gospel and then eventually laid down his life. And now we see Philip similarly from that same group of oppressed and marginalized people raised up. And now where does he go? Philip goes to Samaria. Let, we can't miss the significance of this. First of all, Philip, a marginalized person who, who experienced some division and some even uh, unjust kind of um, being left out from the early church, well now he is going to other marginalized people the Samaritans, right? We, we just read that and we're like, oh yeah, the Samaritans, whatever, read, keep going, read along. If you're like me, you kind of are going through time in scripture and you're reading, 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 and then you're like, oh yeah, we need to get more, you know, Cheerios and my car's almost out of gas. And oh yeah, wait, where am I? I just read three chapters. I better go back in. And, and we could do that even now in, in this time, right? And we could be reading along and, and be like, oh yeah, and he went to Samaria, a city in Samaria, and no big deal, keep going. Well, like if you're a Jewish person or anyone actually reading these scriptures when it was originally written, you would stop in your tracks and be like, Samaria. Like the, the church, even Jesus, when he was traveling, if in John chapter four, it talks about Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well, and we're not there this morning, so I'm not gonna spend as much time explaining that, but you would go out of your way to avoid Samaria. Okay, if you were, go- if you were traveling from point A to point B, you wouldn't just go right through the direct line if that meant going through Samaria. Like if you were going from Tucson to Phoenix, you would go to like Globe, and then around and up to Phoenix in order to avoid Casa Grande, right? It was like, we don't go there. We don't like those people. Why is it even there? Um, you know, um, well, someone just said preach. I don't know why. What, what do you have against Casa Grande? Um, 
but, or, or Casa Grande for some of us, right? Um, but, uh, but, but anyway, like it was that serious. You avoided Samaria and, and it's because they viewed them as sellouts. They were like redheaded stepchildren, no offense to our redheaded folks, but it was like the people that you, like, you were related to, but you really didn't like. In fact, as is often the case, the people that you're closest with, you, when they offend you, you, you like despise them all the more. And that's how these Samaritans were viewed. It was because the kingdom of Israel in like the 900s BC was divided. And then in around the 700s BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded by Assyria and they basically sold out and they intermarried and, and kind of combined their faith and they took some of this and took some of that and, and they didn't stay true as the people of God. And so the Jewish people despised them for that. And so the fact now that, that the gospel is crossing clear cultural boundaries as Philip, though persecuted, goes out and now shares this gospel with the Samaritans and many are putting their trust and their faith in Jesus. And, and, and let's, again, enter in there. Like, think with me. Who do you and I think the gospel is not for? Who have we maybe written off and said, that's ah, probably not for them? It could be a particular polo, you know, po politics, a particular party. It could be a particular group of people or maybe you know, somebody that's committed a crime and, and we would say, oh, once you go there, you can't come back. You know, once you've done that kind of horrible evil, like there's no hope for you. you know, kind of throw them in jail and throw out the key you know, well, whatever it might be, whoever it might be, we all have our biases. Well, this is clearly, when this goes, goes out um, and says that Philip went to Samaria and shared the gospel with them and they trusted and put their faith in Christ, this is revealing the radical nature and power of the gospel. This gospel, this good news, okay, let me just kind of, kind of, color this language for us is this, is that um, the gospel is the good news of God, that, that he declared that, that his world that he created and his people that he formed and shaped in his image would, would be restored because when God created us, he created us to reflect his glory and his diversity and his creativity and his power in our relationship with each other, our relationship with him, in everything we do, in our work, in our hobbies, in our play, in everything that that we do that we would reflect him and relate with one another and it would all be good but when sin entered into the world division came division from God division from one another division in our lives right fragmented segmented lives where our work is here and our play is here and our church life is here and our you know and all this division breaks in and so again kind of right now you should be thinking like neon light flashing behind me saying tapestry tables, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's this reality of crossing cultural boundaries and you better believe it's not easy or pretty, right? Like what's that first Sunday worship service look like for these Jewish and Samaritan believers sitting next to each other, right? Like I joke about ASU and someone came up here and put me in check one week. It was like, I have a doctorate from ASU. Do you have a doctorate? Like, dang, no, uh, touche, right? So, 
no more ASU jokes for me. But, like, right, we joke about that stuff, but it's, you know, other than a couple people in here, you know who you are, who have this idolatry here and you can't let it go. Um, like, we don't, that's not, that's, we joke about that. But, I mean, just imagine, like, people that you absolutely hated, you're now called brothers and sisters together, called to lay your life down for one another. That's the power of the gospel. That when, though we, though we embrace sin and we embrace division and we embrace keep me over here and you over there, right? Like you do you, I'll do me. We do our own thing here and we don't interact and, and, and that's, that's embracing sin. But the good news is that when God declared that he would put an end to sin, that he would crush sin and its effects all the way back in Genesis chapter three and then going forward all throughout the, scripture, the scriptures proclaiming the good news that would come, the gospel is 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 being um is being being proclaimed and there's like anticipation for it all throughout the old testament and then jesus declaring the good news the gospel is at hand it's a gospel that endures and that crosses the boundaries that we set up to bring together and then we see something come up here next where we see the gospel unifying and, and, and so I'm gonna skip ahead from chapter 14, okay? We're gonna hit that next part. We're gonna spend most of our time in that next part. We'll get down to chapter, um, or not chapter 14. We'll get to verse nine in a moment. But first, jump ahead with me to verse 14, okay? Where we see probably a very confusing little section of scripture here that I wanna spend some time in. Okay, again, first we see the gospel enduring persecution. The gospel crossing cultural boundaries, and then now we see the gospel unifying. So pick up with me in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they, went, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's going on here? God bless you. Um, so what's going on here? That there would be this second event here of the Holy Spirit descending and coming. Like some of you might be wondering, right? You read that and that might be confusing. Well, there's a purpose for this. First, let me say this. It's not the norm. Okay, there are four instances here in the New Testament and specifically in Acts where this happens, where there's a separate event where someone puts their faith in Jesus and then the Holy Spirit descends upon that person or they receive the Holy Spirit or other language that's used is they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, um, some, some of that kind of language. And whole denominations and whole theologies have been formed and shaped around this idea that that's the norm, that, there's, that you trust Jesus, you put your faith in him, and then some other time you receive the Holy Spirit. And let me just, just very clearly say here that we would reject and disagree with that 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 is not the norm set forward in scripture. That in scripture what happens is what you see is you put your faith in Jesus, you, you trust in him, and this beautiful mystery takes place where you go from darkness to light, from death to life. You, you see that from, from non-believer to believer, to, to enemy of Jesus to follower of Jesus. 
from enemy of God to son and daughter of God. And when someone is baptized, we have a baptism service coming up the week after Easter. We will we'll see this on display, right? And someone is baptized and it's a picture of, of buried with Christ and raised again to new life in him. And, and what happens in that moment? Again, there's this whole beautiful mystery of the order. And some people spend tons and tons of time and have written huge books on what is the actual order there, the order of salvation. And what is it? And, and it's that in it's again this beautiful mystery here that, that it's so, what happens there sometimes in a nanosecond is our eyes are opened. You go from blindness to sight and your heart goes from stone to flesh and you go from unbelieving to believing and you put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who does the act and the work of opening and, and of, of, of illuminating and of giving you ears to hear and, and, and this whole thing and now the Holy Spirit descends and, 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 and dwells you, fills you, baptizes you, and you are now empowered to live this new life that you have just been given, that you have just trusted in through faith in Jesus. I've shared before, I was baptized in a church that didn't believe it like that. It was a Pentecostal church and believed that you were baptized, um, you put your faith in Jesus and you're baptized and you're baptized in the spirit and it was this different event. And, 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 and again, that's not the norm. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we see it just, that whole chapter actually really lo- lo- lays it out and explains this one baptism here. But, but it says this specifically, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then why in this case is it different? Again, let me say there's a particular purpose that the author here wanted to convey and that God wanted to convey in this early forming of the church. He he wanted to get something across. Okay, hear me, look at me, because this is really important, and it's directly related to that crossing cultural, that cross-cultural um, reality of the gospel, and that's what's going on here, because the very fact that the Samaritans put their faith in Jesus, first of all, many people would not believe, or they would say, well, it's different, you know, they didn't, well, no, not just did they trust in Jesus. Well, how do we know they really meant it? How, did they, how do we know they're real? How do we know they're real believers? How do we know they're real, a real p- part of the church? Well, guess what? They have the Holy Spirit. Well, is it the same Holy Spirit? I mean, could be different. It, it was through Philip. He's, he's a Greek-speaking Jew. You know, it was a little different. It could be from him. We don't really know. Well, no, no, guess what? We know because they went and the Holy Spirit descended upon them when when Peter and John, like big dogs, right? These guys are like team captains here, right? And we've already seen in Acts, as we've read, that Peter and John have been mentioned multiple times, and Peter has seen, right, thousands and thousands of people. Like, Peter's like a big guy, and and God has used him mightily, and he is clearly a restored follower of Jesus. He's a part of the true church. So Peter now goes and lays hands on these Samaritans and prays for them, and they receive the same spirit, as Peter and John, and of every follower of Jesus. And God wants to make abundantly clear from the very beginning that there is one head of the church, Jesus, and there is one collective people of his, filled and led and empowered by the same Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent. The good news of Jesus 
The gospel unifies. And that's why this is so clearly um, pointed out here. That, 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 that I think God withheld or delayed the sending of the Spirit in order to make that abundantly clear as this early church is forming. So again, hear me right now. This is not the norm. We don't base our theology off of these exceptions to the rule a couple times, but we see that there's a particular purpose in this case, but the norm is, again, what I talked about. There is one people, one baptism, one, one, one people filled with one Holy Spirit under one head, the King, Jesus. Amen? So again, as we consider now the crossing of cultures, let us like be cut to the heart here and see the reality that, 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 um, that Jesus is shaping a people. The fact that they laid hands on these Samaritans is so significant. If you guys remember back in Acts chapter 6 when, when, uh, when the apostles laid hands on the Greek-speaking Jews, there was a, significant, uh, there was a significance there that, that the laying on of hands is, is, to, is to give um, a, a sense of, of a transmission of power and of authority and of influence and of intimacy. So the fact that he, they went and they laid hands on the Samaritan shows that this beautiful picture of this glorious good news, this gospel that endures persecution and crosses cultural boundaries and unifies. And then lastly, when we're gonna spend more time in this section here, that the gospel confronts sin. Okay, so pick up with me now in verse nine. And, and, and I kind of broke it up there because you'll see verses 9 through um, 13 and then verses 18 through 25 is this whole section that deals with this guy, Simon the Magician. Okay, and, and we need to spend some time here because there's a lot going on and it's very applicable to us today. And I know we don't have a lot of magicians in here, right, that I know of. If you do, you probably hide that identity. But, um, but um but there's a lot of significance here in what goes on. So picking up with me in verse nine. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, again, that's gospel, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon, verse 13, himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, so let me just kind of paint this picture here, right? Because we could, again, write this off and be like, magicians, kind of weird, like the weird people at kids' birthday parties that, you know, are like 50, 60-year-old guys pulling rabbits out of hats and all these different things. Like, we don't have that. We don't really deal with that. Well, in this cultural context, in this day, Again, look at the language here used. It's built up to show this was a man of great power and great influence whose identity, whose relationship with other people was built up, was elevated because of the fact that he was a magician. 
Very likely he performed all these miracles, again in this Samaritan context where they kind of believed in Judaism and also kind of synchronized with other, other false gods and other things. And so Simon had this whole, this whole aura about him. Okay, don't miss this. That he, he was a person of great power and great influence. So again, in our day, that's usually not magicians. But there are a lot of magicians among us, okay? Let's be real. We all have different things about us that we build our identity and our purpose upon, that we get, you know, respect from others built upon these things, that other people are amazed at us, that our our whole life is centered around certain things that are true of us. And it says that, 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 that this is a, a, a power that everyone was amazed at. Now, again, magicians isn't our thing, but let me just spend a, a, a second here dividing and explaining here what is going on. This is a, 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 a power that is like the, the power of the world or the kingdom of this world. And it says, but then Philip came proclaiming the gospel, uh, a good news of a power that is far greater, a power of the kingdom of God, right? We don't use kingdom language in our everyday life here a lot, so I need to explain this some to us, right? We don't have kingdom, right? This is America. We don't do monarchs. We have presidents and things like that. We, we vote for who we want to vote for, but the, 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 the language in scripture is, is a kingdom language because, again, going all the way back to the very beginning, are you guys tracking with me here? Yep, amen. So we've got kingdom of God. Okay, when God creates and God declares and God says, this is how the world will be, this is who you are, this is who I am, this is what work looks like, this is what marriage looks like, this is what relationship looks like, all this stuff, that's the kingdom of God. Well, then sin enters into the world, and in short, the kingdom of this world, not God, is what kind of sin could be, could be kind of boiled down to. Thanks, but no thanks, God. We'll do it on our own. And that's power, identity, purpose, relationship, everything apart from God. So you've got kingdom of God, kingdom of the world. Okay, and then again, Jesus comes in to the scene and declares the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. A new king's in town, right? A new sheriff. Like, I'm gonna kind of set things in motion the way they're supposed to be, and there is a, a conflict and a clash between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And again, that's, that's the world as we know it is the kingdom of this world. And so Simon is used to a power and an authority that comes from the kingdom of this world. And then he puts his trust in Jesus, and all of a sudden this conflict, this clash of kingdoms is apparent in this, in this early church. It's messy. Okay, pick up with me what happened here in, um, in verse 18. Now Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here is that the, the authority, the identity, the, the, the power, the influence that Simon was used to is now getting diminished as he's a part of a new kingdom, as he's a part of the kingdom of this world, as the gospel that unifies and crosses cultural boundaries, the whole pecking order is a little different. And he's a part of the church now. 
and he's not like the big man on campus anymore. He's not the man of great authority, and he's struggling with that. Like all of us, when you come to faith, you bring a certain amount of baggage with you. And Simon's baggage is he's used to an authority, a power, an influence that's now getting questioned as he comes into the church. And he, it's a struggle, and he says, I've got to have it. So he asks for it through money. He says, hey, can I get some? I, I've lost some power, some influence, some authority. I want it back, and I see that you have it. Can I pay for it? And what does Peter say in verse 20? May your silver perish with you. Essentially what he says is, you and your money can go to hell. That's, that's the language to use, the severity that's used here. And then he goes on and explains it, and we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to why Peter would talk so, so harshly, so aggressively, so, so forcefully here. But, but guys, let's connect the dots here because we cannot miss this. This is so applicable to us today. Because again, we don't have magicians among us, but we all carry baggage. We all carry what we're used to. And you know what this looks like in our world today? What it looks like us saying, can I pay to have that kind of power and authority? It looks like in our world, coming into a church and seeing structures that are set up that God has designed and saying, maybe I could get one of those roles, one of those positions, one of those titles, and I can use that. And I can use these people to get the power and the influence and the identity and the respect that I'm used to in this context. It looks like someone saying, well, I was a CEO and, 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 and I have great authority and great power and great influence in my workplace, in, in my cultural, in my, society, in my social life, in my home wherever it is, and, and I was really used to that, and I really held on to that, and now that I put my trust in Jesus and I'm a part of this, this, this whole new kingdom that says you find life by losing your life, that the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and this kind of upside-down economy within the kingdom that Jesus demonstrates by giving his life for the good of others, and it's saying, I don't know that I really want to buy into all that. Maybe I could become an elder. Then I'll have some power and some effect and some influence. Then I can use God and his people to get the way I things want to be. I can kind of push my own agenda. Maybe I could be a redemption community leader because then I can have these people in my home and I can shape them and I can form little minions and little followers of me and, and make things the way I want it to be. Maybe I can lead in this different aspect now, of course, are those things good? Absolutely. We're told you should aspire to the office of elder. You should aspire to different positions of, of influence and leadership. Yes, it's good. But similarly here, if in any case it is anything other than laying down your rights and using your position and your privilege, privilege for God's glory and the good of others, then we need to hear, may you and your selfish agenda go to hell. That's the kind of language that Peter uses here. And again, we have that so rampant in church culture. I mean, I'm gonna use some intensity and some language here as we talk that I just, I am growing weary, guys, of seeing us buy into the kingdom of this world 
in myself, in my own heart, ways I am so consistently tempted to use God in his church, in ways I see ourselves, and the more and more I interact with other churches and I hear about elder boards and conflicts and splits and that ultimately you trace it back to why, how did that happen? How did these things go about? How did that marriage crumble? How did that person do that? How did that person embezzle money and use the church for selfish gain? Oh, that's right, because we church it up and we use Christian-y language and we, we, we supplant being an elder or being a deacon for being a magician. And it's the same thing going on here. And we have got to be jarred and see, wow, God, God, the gospel confronts sin and doesn't mince words and shows there is no room for that kind of purchasing of power for selfish gain. And that's what is so clearly on display here. And then as I close, I want to kind of press into another thing here that we've got to take note of, and it's the harshness of Simon's rebuke, or sorry, of Peter's rebuke of Simon. Kind of confusing. His name used to be Simon. Now it's Peter. But Peter calls out Simon and again says, may you May your, perish, your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore. That word repentance means turn, right? 180 degree turn. You're pursuing the kingdom of this world. You've bought into the lie of power and influence and identity and authority and respect and social status that it just blends in with the kingdom of this world. Turn from that. Embrace the kingdom economy, the gospel economy of, of, of authority that is used to lay down your rights for the good of others. Repent and pray for forgiveness if it is possible that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, verse 22. And then in verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall. That word is like, like throw up, like acidic bile. For you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come true. Now before I get into Peter's harshness for a minute and we kind of wrap this whole thing up, a question that's probably coming up here, well, was this guy Simon a believer? Was he a Christian? Because it said up there earlier that in verse uh, 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Let me just say, I don't know. Maybe some of you in this room are asking the same question, am I a Christian? Could that same thing happen to me? Some of what Dave just talked about, about selfish ambition and desire, I see that well up in my own heart. Am I a Christian? Well, I don't know. In this case, in Simon the Magician's case, if he simply kind of stumbled back into the ways that he once held on to and he became a Christian and he put his faith in Christ and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's now walking and then all of a sudden he's called out for his sin and if he truly repents and his sin is exposed to him and he says, oh man, I didn't realize that was going on in my life. I didn't realize I was holding on to that. Thank you for pointing it out. Like, this is hard. This is going to be difficult. But as we grow into Christ-likeness, okay, you grow into your identity in Christ. This is, this is 
referred to as sanctification. It's a, it's an, it's a lifelong process of, of, of growing into who we already are. Okay, if you put your trust in Jesus, you go from enemy to child of God. And then throughout life, through, through God the Holy Spirit, bringing sin to bear and revealing it in our lives and then confessing and repenting and praying for one another and growing in our faith, it's an ongoing process of seeing our sin revealed and then, and then repenting of it and holding it up and then being forgiven and, 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 and continuing to grow into your identity as a new follower of Jesus. If that's the case, in, then absolutely he's a believer. Absolutely, there's no question. It's, hear me, okay? It's not, oh shoot, I just did this terrible sin. I must not be a Christian now. It's what do you do with that when you're made aware of it? Do you repent and turn and embrace the forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus and pray for the Holy Spirit to change you and restore you and give you a new heart and enable you to live into a new identity, to, to lay down your life for God's glory and the good of others? If that's the case, then yeah, very candidly, I don't know here with Simon, he may not have because in verse, 20, um, verse 24, he says, well, pray for me. And he, asks, he tells him to pray for him. And I think it's like him saying, right? Peter says, you pray, you go do work with God. You go before God, you lay your heart before God. And you're like, oh, well, I know that my mama prays, so I'm gonna go ask her to pray for me. And you pray for me, you know, and I'm just gonna go on and do things my own. If that's the case, if he's not owning his sin and coming individually before God for forgiveness and restoration and healing, then maybe he's not a believer. But that's not the main point here. The main point is to show in this early church that is forming, that is being shaped by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus, that sin will be confronted. And the question for us to ask is, what do we do with that sin when it is exposed? If we repent and turn and ask for forgiveness, God is faithful and just to forgive every time. He's proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. Now back to Peter and this harsh language that he used. We need to take note of that among us. Again, guys, I am growing weary and not like, oh, woe is me. We among us, just all, think among you, the older folks among us who have been living this a long, a, a long time. Have you not seen more and more and more your friends, fellow believers, or people you thought were believers just dropping like flies? Have you not seen fires just engulfing homes and marriages and, and, and whole lives, whole communities because of unconfessed sin, because of hidden sin that has been going on for, for days or weeks or even years? Just this last week, uh, just this last few weeks, again, as I went back to Chico and where my wife and I were just enveloped in godly Christian community, people pouring into us, there were three of like maybe 10 people I asked about or said, oh yeah, what about this couple? What about this guy who was an elder? What about that guy who so generously helped build this gym, this massive gym, thousands and thousands of dollars? Oh yeah, that guy left his wife and is, had an affair and found an old high school you know, flame on, 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 on Facebook. Oh yeah, that guy had a, a, an affair going on for seven freaking years while you were meeting and talking and praying together there was a hidden affair going on 
Yeah, the, like half the people that stood up next to us in our, in, in our wedding have turned away. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons I think is that we don't take sin seriously enough like Peter here, that when we see little hints of, of, of immorality, little hints of, of, of godlessness welling up among us, whether it be, again, in, like Simon the Magician using the church for selfish gain, or again, I think in our day, the prominent one is, is sexual immorality, Okay, singles, the kind of this, like you're in dating relationships and you're just kind of cruising along and we have these accountability groups and we encourage one another and oh, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that and we don't look at someone in the eye and say, you know what, your marriage is gonna be scarred. You are gonna have years, there is hope in the gospel, amen. Okay, I'm not gonna get away from that but also your marriage will be informed and defined by the, the, the premarital sex you are giving yourself to right now we just say hey man i'm sorry you're struggling i'll pray for you you know let's talk about it next week (laughs) and the next you know 52 weeks thereafter well we don't have this kind of harsh language it says there are you're playing with matches right now and you're in a field of dry grass and the whole thing is going to burst in flames right now we don't talk to other married men and women and say, yeah, that relationship you have with a coworker, with your secretary, the way I've seen you kind of change your tone and your look when you interact with that person, it's gonna kill you. Your kids are gonna be bitter. Your parents are gonna wonder whether God is real and his gospel is real, whether it endures because you're not enduring. This should be so normal in our culture. As we grow as a young church, a vulnerable church, just like this early church in Acts, I pray that we would love each other enough to confess our sins, to call out one another's sins, to pray for each other, to be shaped by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That the words of uh, James chapter 5, verse 16 It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another pointedly. Don't church it up. Don't doctor it up. I'm slipping up. I'm messing with this. I'm doing this. No, that we would have relationships. Consistent, guys. That's the other key here is it's consistent. We're consistently around one another. We're in community together. We're in redemption communities. We meet together on a weekly basis. We have mentorship relationships. We don't have these fragmented lives all over the place, but we have a handful of people who we can text and who can text us or call us and look each other in the eye and say, I love you so much that I want to speak candidly for you or that you say I know that because of Jesus I have nothing to hide and nobody to impress so I want to ask for prayer right now because I'm struggling I'm tempted there's a little spark getting ignited in my heart and I want to bring you around me to pray thank God last night I had four or so guys in our church that I knew I could text because I had a hard day and anger was welling up and all kind of different places and I saw myself lashing out and I could say guys I need you to pray for me I'm struggling and I know I'm not going to get oh man that's the lead pastor he can't do you know whatever 
No, I got just bombarded back with texts at 9.30 night. Hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. Thanks for bringing us into this. And, and it's like a weight lifted. That's the gospel. Th- this is what we've got. We're not here to play church. For those of us here who are not Christians, we're not, we're not playing smoke and mirrors here. There's no like kind of impress you with something. And then that's what, it's real, it's gritty, it's messy, but it's good. Amen. So as we pray and respond, as we continue to grow as a young church, let us be shaped by the good news of Jesus, the gospel that endures and crosses cultural boundaries and unifies and confronts sin. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we love you and we need you and we trust you. Um, Lord, I I pray that uh, you would do work on us and in us and among us even this morning as we now respond Lord, would the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who we've talked about and seen here on display, would we experience him empowering us and leading us and opening our eyes and our hearts and our ears and leading us to repentance and to faith and to forgiveness and to hope. Lord, would we shape a culture among us? Would we forge relationships where seemingly great and seemingly small conversations would be, would be seasoned by confession and prayer and encouragement and harsh calling out and confrontation with sin and being shaped by the good news of Jesus, the gospel. In his name we pray, amen.